Today's episode was recorded in 2015 in London. The panel will discuss the Indigenous journey, past, present and future. It's a rare opportunity to gain insight into the journey of Australia's Aboriginal people from past to present through the eyes of UWS School of Indigenous Studies, along with acclaimed academics in rock art and cultural history. question and I will be generalised totally about this and I'm um, trying to give an overview. Pleased to see everyone here and I guess if everyone studied at UWA um, you've all actually had an experience of Aboriginal knowledge by simply being on country in Australia and in Western Australia whether you've and some might have had a more direct thing than that but whether you've known or not you've had an experience of country and an experience of knowledge in place. So just a reminder when we talk about Aboriginal Australia and because I'm going to generalise so much, Aboriginal Australia we often talk about as just a single entity but it is in fact 250 separate language groups. It's more like Europe than anything else. In fact it's probably larger than Europe in terms of the number of nations that live on it if we define that as separate territory and separate systems. Collectively all these groups form what we call an Indigenous knowledge system or an Aboriginal knowledge system. And what I'm going to talk about generally is I guess just what brings us together 
and the sort of common characteristics of that, and I am being really simplistic, very um, summary, and I, and I hope you got something out of it. So if we want to look at Aboriginal knowledge, I think the first thing to recognise too, it is the oldest continuous knowledge system in the world. Alastair and his mates have verified that for us quite kindly, with about 50 to 80,000 years of an, of an Aboriginal presence in Australia. From an Aboriginal point of view though, I think we'd say we've always been there. Where my family, I mean I was born and brought up in Perth, but my family's from the Pilbara. So in the Pilbara when we talk about the dreaming or we talk about the knowledge of our country or the story of our country, they talk about it as Mangani, which means a time when the earth was soft. So Aboriginal people see that as the very beginning. So how I see that sometimes is that must mean when the earth's crust was really forming. And when we look scientifically at what Aboriginal people know about that, then the oldest rocks in the world are from the Pilbara area of Western Australia. So Aboriginal knowledge systems are really long, they're quite ancient, but they're still really alive and living today and people tell those stories. When we talk about knowledge in an Aboriginal sense, we often talk about story, but story often has a very different meaning in a Western sense because it's seen as, you know, it's the sort of stories are something that's often made up or something that's not quite true or something that's merely personal. A lot of Aboriginal knowledge gets wrongly characterised as or placed in myth, metaphor, native, um, narrative, all the sort of not quite true stuff, or it gets placed into paranormal or abnormal sort of activity. From an Aboriginal point of view, the knowledge is all around us in Australia and it's manifest in country. And for Aboriginal people, it's got its own evidence system. When you walk out your front door or you walk out into country, you can see it. You can see the tracks of where the dreaming ancestors walked. You can see what happened in country. And I don't know how long this is going to be, but I might just take a bit of time to say. So from an Aboriginal point of view, a worldview, it's a really holistic system. And the key part of that system is, is about place. Knowledge is embedded in country. We see it all around it. What it also says, it's very much an animate system, which is quite different to a Western system. So in a Western system, while it still sees plants and trees and animals as living, Aboriginal people also add to that rocks and wind and water and sky, all as living, living beings, all having spirit in them and also having feelings and emotions. You talk to them, you learn from them, you hear from them, they can smell you. And so it, it's a very different way of looking at everything as being living. It also doesn't sort of necessarily have a hierarchy of living, which I think Aboriginal people see Western systems as having, which is from a Western point of view, we often add value to living things and we often categorise them by value. So we have parks and we have gardens and then we might have something like desert and we also have weeds and vermin and pests, not just animals. We also have a hierarchy of living things, which is obviously the smaller at the bottom, insects, etc., up to mammals, up to people. And as we go up, things are seen as more valuable. And ultimately, unfortunately, some people are also seen as more valuable than others. For Aboriginal people, it's much more of a flat structure, which says, you know, everything's important, everything has value. Dreaming for big kangaroo dreaming, which everybody would like to be because it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But we also have termite dreaming and we have feral cat dreaming and we have dreaming about all sorts of things. And it's great if you get to have the eagle as your totem or you get to be one of the big guys in the world. But equally, people are responsible for termite dreaming or for very dreamings that we don't think are important. But in an Aboriginal world, everything's the same but different. 
Um, and I think for an Aboriginal knowledge system, one of its unique characteristics is not just intense knowledge of things, but also it's a thinking system as well. It's a different way of approaching the world. And the biggest thing about it is place, which is linked to identity, but also about relationship and about process. If everything's living, then everything's in relationship. Everything's in an intimate personal relationship and you're just as likely to be related to wind and water, to be related to plants and animals and see them as a brother or sister or a grandmother or grandfather as you are to people. An understanding of the dreaming, which is the yes, and Aboriginal people don't like the word dreaming necessarily. It is a term, I like it because it's a lovely term, but most Aboriginal people have a special, their own name in their own language for it. And it's much more means law than necessarily dreams as we understand them, which is just something you go to sleep and have or something that you imagine. So I guess from an Aboriginal point of view, that system of everything being related means that basically everyone looks after each other. And the essence of the dreaming often is that the positions were reversed. So in the dreaming, most of the ancestors that created it and were sort of the people were the animals and they then became, so they were people then became animals now and the animals then became people now. So it switched around. Aboriginal people, there's a strong sense of all of that still alive. Um, often when we look at Western systems, I think there's a tendency for Western knowledge to see everything is getting better in the future. So the best things are going to happen in the future. We're going to get younger. We're going to look better. We're going to have more money. We're going to have all of these things. We're going to discover new things. Aboriginal people, there's an element of that. But the biggest thing, the best thing that could ever happen is the dreaming, and that's what we live every day. So the major events have already happened. And what we do now is just relive those, in a sense, or celebrate those. And how about time? I mean, the, the panel's title is about past, present, future. How does time fit into that? A linear model doesn't sound like it. No, so for Aboriginal people, I guess, um, we talk about time as being more circular in Aboriginal sense. Now, I think physics often has a different view of time. I, I don't want to say that because there's probably scientists here that will, will correct me. But there's a linear sense of time, and most Western time is linear. It goes from, you know, BC to AD and into the future. For Aboriginal people, past, present and future all exist in the same place. And I think that sense of past, present and future and time all being in the one place at the same time means often that spirit worlds and physical worlds coexist and they interact on a daily basis. There's a seamlessness between a physical world and a spiritual world. There's a sense in which for Aboriginal people our ancestors, like our grandmothers and grandfathers and great-grandmothers, are behind us, i.e. they've lived this bodily life, if you like, but they're also ahead of us because they've gone on to the next stage of their journey. So ancestors are both behind and ahead of us, and I think it all exists in the same place. And, and, that, and that operates parallel to Western learning within Australia. And what opportunities there to integrate the two, or what could be gained through better integration? Okay. In, in 35 words or less. In 35 <laughs> words or less. Um, I think that Aboriginal um, knowledge has kind of been undervalued in Australia or hidden in Australia, and people don't... The whole problem with Aboriginal Australia, I think, not with us, but maybe with Australia, is often to see Aboriginal people as just needing things. So they need welfare or they need help with health or they need all of this, and it's never looked at what Aboriginal people have to contribute. I think Aboriginal people themselves think that Indigenous knowledge has amazing things to contribute, not just to Australia, but to the world. That Indigenous knowledge is both a thinking system. I mean, people can see, particularly scientists, see the value of 
this intense ecological knowledge. So it says clearly everyone expects Aboriginal people understand their environment and provide good information. But it's more than that. It has, it's a whole thinking system. It has a lot to say about relationships. It's also really good at dealing with paradox. It deals really well with multi multiplicity. It doesn't have a, a problem with all things being true, though truth is a sort of a relative term, but it can hold lots of things true at the same time without having to choose either or. It's not one or the other. It can hold lots of things, I think, in the same, it's like having a lot of balls in the air at the same time. I think an Aboriginal as a knowledge system is really clever from that point of view. Jess, let's move on to you. I mean, we've talked a bit about knowledge being a living thing. You're studying now in the UK in a Western knowledge system. I mean, how, how do, in your experience, have those different conceptions of Western and Aboriginal knowledge just worked with you? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess from the outset, I, I want to say, like, having grown up with a Western system, you know, pretty much from birth and also had Indigenous culture in my life as well, it's, it's not possible for me to separate what knowledge comes from where. But I think absolutely what, what Jill was talking about, especially in terms of the idea of Aboriginal knowledge as a thinking system, that very strongly resonates with, with my, um, my upbringing and personal experiences. You know, I, I think I was extremely blessed to grow up in a family culture where my family had maintained connections to culture and where this was a big part of how we grew up in terms of, you know, incorporating storytelling, music, lots of discussion about different areas of knowledge. And, and, and as, as Jill pointed out, there was never a sense that different forms of knowledge or different ways of understanding the world were better than others. There was this, there is a sort of non-hierarchical sense to that. And in a sense, I've, I guess reflecting on maybe some things Paul said about the flexibility of, of universities these days, and, and of course interdisciplinarity is a, is a big buzzword. And, and that sort of, to me, seems to, to make a lot of sense but I think, uh, in a sense, they're only just starting to get there. I mean, something like interdisciplinarity still comes from the standpoint of different disciplines sort of coming together for mutual benefit. But really, I guess, in an indigenous way of seeing things, those knowledge systems are actually inseparable. As well, I think the idea of not just different forms of knowledge being valuable, the people that hold that knowledge across generations being really important. For instance, before I applied for Oxford University, um, actually while I was doing my application and I was incredibly stressed out and I was really worried that, you know, my idea for my project um, wasn't going so well, you know, I, I called up my 87-year-old grandmother who's never finished high school, is certainly not an expert in the field that I was studying in, but her way of thinking about things, um, her way of using different kinds of knowledge was incredibly insightful. So of course there was an element of calling her and going, oh, I'm so worried about going overseas. But most of it was really this, this intellectual exchange actually. The topic I'm chosen to study is on artists in residency programs and the idea that, that artists, contemporary artists today need to be globally mobile in order to achieve success. And of course hearing from my grandmother about indigenous ways of thinking about art and what it means to move around and how art is connected to country actually has huge value for, for understanding that topic. I mean, how do you reconcile knowledge in people and, and in place with knowledge in artefacts and books and going to the library in Oxford? I'm not trying to make that sound dull. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I see in the libraries going, oh, wow, the library. Yeah. <laughs> it is useful. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the point is that those two things don't need to be reconciled in an indigenous sort of knowledge, in indigenous knowledge systems. Books and 
artifacts and country and people, all these things carry knowledge. I, I think that's sometimes the difficulty for the Western system which has sort of divided these things up so well and is now trying to bring them together. For instance, in terms of, say, say objects or, or artifacts, as, as you said in your question, you know, on the one hand, in, in the Western system, an artifact can be sort of this, this proof of something, this evidence, it can be treated scientifically. But we also understand objects as, as something that resonates with, that resonate with memory, with, effect, with affect, with emotion. But in a way, those two things are often seen as very separate and never integrated. And I think as sort of Jill referred to before, um, often there's a tendency to sort of relegate indigenous knowledge to the sort of emotional, personal, spiritual realm and not understand that it's actually very effectively integrating lots of different things when it talks about knowledge that can be held in places, people, country, books, artifacts. It's actually really the relationships between those things that, that become important. Well, you're studying fine art. Yeah. Um, you're studying fine art, and obviously the UK is brimming, it has been deemed brimming with colonial artifacts um, that presumably have been quilted for generations um, and, and, and will never be returned. But, but how do Indigenous contemporary artists feel about that experience? Yeah. yeah, actually being in the UK is actually a fantastic place to study um, Australian contemporary art and Indigenous contemporary art because there have been some absolutely incredible residencies and art projects that have been made in response to cultural artifacts here to historical collections. For instance, Christian Thompson studied at Oxford also at the Ruskin School and, and did quite a large project on the Australian photographic collection at the Pitt Rivers Museum. One of the fantastic things about that project, I think, is so he, so he spent a lot of time in the collection looking at the photographs, sort of communing with them. Um, he did a lot of performances and, and went through lots of processes in response. But the final work ended up being a series of self-portraits with him wearing different costumes and sort of performing different characters. But in a sense, his final artworks don't reveal anything from the artwork, from the, from the archive. In a sense, they turn away from the archive and say, well, I've been through a process of, of engaging with this material. It's really important. It's really meaningful. But it's not my place to to show it. Uh, there's been some other really fantastic residencies. Julie Goff at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge, who worked with um, some archaeological stone tools from Tasmania, where she's from. Daniel Boyd at the Natural History Museum, who worked with their first fleet collection. But what I think you see in all these residencies, and in, in a way they, they navigate sort of tenuous ground, because there is a sense that these museums want to use residencies to legitimate holding these collections to, to, to import some authority, some cultural authority in. But I think what, what very cleverly these artists managed to do is say, well, actually, yeah, these are things we want to engage with. We're not going to do it on behalf of everybody because that's not appropriate. We'll have a personal response. But often that response is to point out exactly what's missing from the archive, the, the information that, that isn't there because it never included the perspectives in, of Indigenous people and, you know, the, the sort of ethical problem of them still holding on to things that have great importance for back home. I have to say, um, what, what art is living art? And, and with Indigenous people can trace it back, as Jill said, to 18,000 years, potentially. How, how's rock art in the experience of your work different to that of the art that I would go see or to the Cape Modern Museum? Yeah, that's... 
a great question. You know, I do think it reminds me a little bit of some of these ideas around a separate idea of a Western knowledge system and and an Indigenous knowledge system. And of course, the great challenge of you know, archaeologists and parts is perhaps to look at past knowledge systems around the planet, you know, in different parts of the world as well. I think when we uh, when we look at rock art, the reason we're interested in rock art in Western Australia is, you know, it's justifiably famous now for the incredible rock art uh, assemblages, if you like, to use a word like that, but these wonderful parts of Western Australia where you have a richness of rock art which is beyond, you know, many other places on the planet. And so there's a, a real extraordinary aspect of Western Australia to look at there. When we look at art in galleries, we're really coming from a, we've been trained to look at art and search for meaning in art as it hangs on walls and such things, really from a Western perspective. So, you know, the landscape tradition of art and the Dutch gave us and all of these things probably make it really difficult for us to look at rock art and open up levels of understanding which uh, exist there. So for us, I think one of the challenges is putting aside those ideas of what art is for. Um, a lot of people who are really interested will come to you and say, you know, what is this art of? What is it for? And I don't think they're the kinds of questions which get an archaeologist anywhere uh, because I don't think that that's our business. What we're really looking at uh, in many places is a remnant of a marking behaviour. And so art happens to be, in, you know, in places where you have painted art or engraved art, it's the stuff that survived in the landscape. As Jill said, all these things happening in place. And all those places where art has been made and marking has been made, all we have is a tiny portion of that. There's a lot in Western Australia, but it's still a, only a portion. And there's all this other marking which we don't have access to. The body, tattoos, costumes, you know, things that get moved around the landscape. A great example would be something like shells. So in Western Australia, people for over 50,000 years have chosen to take shells from the coast, even when the coast was a Pleistocene shoreline 20, 30 kilometres out from where it is now, and they've used that shell for significance. So it's been traded. The largest trade system anywhere on the planet 200 years ago was probably the transfer, or 200 years ago, but maybe 1,000 years ago, would have been the transfer of pearl shells from Western Australia out into Central Australia. John Mulvaney, Australian archaeologist, called this the chains of connection. And there's some really extraordinary ideas of, about the significance of that material. It's, it's marked up as well, and it turns up in archaeological sites. And that happens from the first moment that we start to see archaeological evidence of people in Australia. So um, it's turning up in rock shells because people are moving shells. And so we have other types of marking and other types of significance, and rock art is part of that. It's only one of the, the lines of evidence. And do Australians understand the, the importance of archaeology? Do you think? Uh, I'm, sure they, well, I'm sure they. Archaeologists, as you say, archaeologists feel they're important, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> everyone else thinks we're Indiana Jones, as you yeah, pointed out. So, um, look, archaeology in a, in a place like Australia is a really young discipline. Okay? Even in the 60s and 70s, people really didn't even start to think about the antiquity of humans in Australia, and as Jill said, there's different ideas around that, but it's something that happened as a result of radiocarbon dating, we had a revolution in our understanding of the time depth of Australia. So Australia is truly ancient, 50,000 years, whatever date we choose to use, um, it reflects an incredibly long period of time that humans and average ancestors have been in Australia. And so, you know, do people understand the importance of archaeology? They probably do now, but I don't still think we've got a long way to go in terms of understanding the importance of Indigenous knowledge in Australia, and that's why 
you know, it's great to see in recent years some people shift towards the Australian curriculum. I don't know when you went to primary school, um, but it was a while ago for some of you, all of us. And, uh, you know, now, you know, Indigenous, Indigenous history, you know, deep time history as well as recent history plays a far more prominent role. And it sits alongside other parts of the ancient past, like Egypt, Greece and Rome, all that stuff that we, we all love from a Western perspective. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a bit of a catch up there. Uh, and it's still a long way to go. But I think, you know, perhaps archaeological information does play a role in that as well as indigenous. And, and how do you compare rock art in, in Western Australia here, for example, with somewhere like Stonehenge? And as a million dollar comparable? Stonehenge. I mean, Look, I've been asked about Stonehenge more often than anything else. And I think we always use Stonehenge, we trot Stonehenge out there as, a, as kind of the ultimate heritage item. So really when we talk about Stonehenge, we're now talking about heritage. And heritage is the stuff stuff we want to keep. Uh, but in Australia, people will often say to me, why would you want to work in Australia when you could work somewhere like Stonehenge? Uh, and I, I actually got to excavate a blue Stonehenge in 2009 with the team there, and I can tell them that it's much nicer working in Australia because I was excavating in October. And for me, <laughs> I, I didn't feel like it was part of a story that I was engaged with in the same way that I do in Australia. I think that for me, Stonehenge, we do actually understand quite a lot about that time now, there's a lot of pretty solid explanation around a site like that. What I find amazing is the attachment people generally across the UK society have to their monuments, and that's their archaeological heritage to Stonehenge's, but also other forms of heritage, like heritage animals, heritage breeds, and you know, I was looking at some heritage breeds from the Iron Age in the Cotswolds on the weekend, and this is really kind of a great, a shared attachment in many communities that I've seen to the past, and I think maybe in Australia that's an opportunity for us to, to learn about the continental past, and that's really, again, about reconciliation and knowledge transfer and other things as well. So perhaps it's just a different different country. Obviously, Australia is a different country with a different challenge in front of it in terms of dealing with the past. When you, when you think about how British people feel about Stonehenge, I'm just showing you Stonehenge, that they're big rocks. And they're <laughs> rock um, I mean, is it in any way comparable, I mean, in, in your understanding? It's obviously much younger than the kind of rock art we're talking about. And it captures the public imagination, presumably in a way rock art in Australia is not capturing the mainstream public imagination. No, but I think the place probably that does capture the public imagination is Uluru, which is our big rock um, in the centre. So I think there is a bit of an equivalence there. Um, not that everyone appreciates it, but, you know, that's kind of seen as the centre of Australia and that's probably the biggest thing. I think in the Pilbara, because it's lots of little pieces, so people don't see it and often just see it as um, scratchings. One of the things that I think is really important where we're getting to now, because I think we've sort of got it wrong in Australia um, and, and I don't want it to see as heritage. And, I don't, and, and we talk about Western knowledge and Indigenous knowledge um, as if they're separate. But in fact, if you put them together, you probably have the best knowledge system in the world. And I think we're uniquely placed in Australia to put them both together. And I think when we start looking at what it means to be in country, to be born on country or born from country or even go there as a young child, the importance of Aboriginal stuff is to sort of say, this actually, while Aboriginal people might be the custodians and guardians of it, this is everybody's story. And it's really important for Australians, I think, because I teach a lot of young people and, and we've got a lot of um, young people. In, so we have four or 500 
first-year students enrolled in each of our two first-year units we teach in Aboriginal Australia, and they don't have to enrol in it, so they're choosing to. And I think it's a great sense of, um, particularly Aboriginal Australian young people, wanting to feel a sense of belonging and wanting to understand who their country is. And I think in a way, because of colonisation and because of the separation of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, that we don't have a sense of that being accessible to everybody. And I think if we're going to make things work in Australia, it has to be accessible to everyone at some level and everyone has to understand who their country is and feel, feel proud and able to say, I live in an Aboriginal country and for Aboriginal people, the country is our mother. So I think everyone should be able to understand what it means to have a black mum. Aboriginal mums are really good mums, so it, it means you've got a great mum in Australia. But everyone to feel happy to know who their mother is, because in an Aboriginal worldview, that's what we'd say, you're born from country. Um, women, us girls, get the opportunity to help country give birth to the next generation. And I think the thing that I think is the way forward for Australia, and we won't value heritage or rock art in Australia unless we have a sense that we're all connected to it in some way in Australia, that everyone's been there, can feel a connection. And I think that's a really uncomfortable debate in Australia, and we haven't sort of got there yet. Um, a lot of Australian history is about assimilating Aboriginal people into white Australia, we'll call it, or into mainstream Australia. But I think, in the end, the way is to assimilate Australia into Aboriginal Australia um, as, as the only really way forward, because we all have to feel comfortable in our country. And you can't feel comfortable if you don't really know who your country is, if you think it's just a bit on top, as opposed to it being the whole bit underneath. There's also the question, I guess, of feeling connected to or accepting of culture and knowledge systems and then that leading to more acceptance of people and all of the, I mean, often, as you've already mentioned, Aboriginal people are, are characterised by social problems and being a burden on society as opposed to contributing to society. But if there's a better understanding of that, presumably that will go some way towards starting to address those things or... No, no, I, I think so. Look, I, I think, I mean, even reconciliation, I think, um, I'm not a big fan of reconciliation. I think it, it was important to happen when it did. But what it did is it tried to sort of address the past without actually giving us where we wanted to be in the future. I think the big thing for Aboriginal people is that we haven't been allowed to imagine our future in terms of a presence. So what we imagine our future to be as absence. So we want to get rid of unemployment, we want to stop deaths in custody, we want to drop prison rates, we want to increase health rates. So we imagine ourselves as being absent of all these negatives. But I think we haven't then planned what we'd like to do as a presence. So what's the life we want? Is it an Australian life, as, as Australian life currently looks like? It isn't. I think it's about wanting the best of both worlds. We're quite greedy when it comes down to it. We actually want the best of both worlds. Um, we're not going to give up. The car's quite nice. Um, quite, the TV's quite nice. I do like the internet. Aboriginal people are really taken to the internet. In fact, the internet is something that is a great way of now people putting all their materials and their stories and their art all online. And it's a fantastic repository for remote communities who aren't going to have a big museum built there or a, a big physical presence built there. So they can put all their knowledge and their stories down for next generations. So, and I think it is about... Um, I think in Australia we have the capacity to have absolutely the best of both worlds. That, that would be appropriate, coming from Jim. Um, <laughs> we have a few minutes for questions, Brenda. Is that okay? Um, we have a microphone. Um, is tonight is being recorded because we're in Australia.
Society in England, you know, and everything, uh, in order to be podcast. This is a question really for all panellists, but it follows on from what Jill was just saying. And I was going to ask, is social media, as we know it now, a help or a hindrance to maintaining and building on and perpetuating the indigenous knowledge system and culture? You're the youngest. It's a couple of old fossils. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I think social media can get um, made out to be this um, great panacea for all kinds of things. But I think absolutely it's being already used as a fantastic tool for discussing and generating information about Indigenous knowledge. I mean, I, I know there's been quite a few big political issues in Australia lately, so I've seen a lot of activity on my... Um, social media pages uh, about the Adam Goods controversy and all kinds of things. But I think what I'm really starting to see is other people of my age group starting to have an opinion on Indigenous issues that I ha would have had no clue that they would have were even remotely interested in these things. And, you know, things like Indigenous X, um, great social media platforms for, for, yeah, really generating discussion and also getting away from this, what I guess Jill was referring to, this sort of deficit discourse about what it means to be Indigenous um, and actually promoting the, what, what Indigenous people have to give. Hi, my name's Alison Baker and I had a question. I've been away for a very, very long time from Australia and I was just interested in the extent to which Aboriginal culture has a voice in the environmental movement in Australia um, and what part they're playing now and into the future and to what extent is, are their voice, is their voice being heard? Jill. Um, no, that's okay. Um, I think um, it depends what we come together as. I mean, Aboriginal people, in a sense, are not always automatically aligned with environmentalists, partly because, I guess, um, so there's been debates between environmentalists and Aboriginal people actually over things like national parks. So Aboriginal people would see healthy country as country that engages with people. Country gets very lonely if people aren't there. So they're not going to lock something up as a park. They actually want to live an all country and all country should be lived on and but it's got to be respected and you've got to be responsible and and things like that but it isn't about locking up places to keep them nice so sometimes aboriginal people and environmentalists split ways they might start off saving something but the environmental movement's been very strong for saving a lot of aboriginal heritage um, it's very really strong in the nuclear debate so a lot of aboriginal people are faced with really hard choices about our community will have no income unless we do mining. So mining's a real, been a real threat to rock art and also uranium and um, particularly in nuclear waste repositories because the thinking around nuclear waste is Australia's very stable. It's got lots of, lots of desert which nobody appears to live in but from an Aboriginal point of view, the desert's a wonderful place. It's a really living environment. It's got so much life in it but often we want to put nuclear waste in it. So they come together on that but they don't automatically align on all things um, and communities, I mean communities are split too about development. So some communities will see, and I think a lot of that comes from, it's hard to make choices from poverty. So communities that are very poor and want their young people to have choices will make hard decisions about development. And I mean I don't want to glamorise Aboriginal society or, or romanticise it. It's like any society, every society's got value in it, every knowledge system's got value, and everyone's got things we get wrong and, and things we don't get do as well as others. But I think it's, it's, a, mixed, um, it's a mixed relationship. 
very strong support for some things and then some, some different views on others. Hi, I'm Jude Cullity. I was just really interested in something you said earlier because I've had um, a number of independent friends that have had amazing spiritual experiences out in country like in the Stirling Ranges or up north or somewhere and then they've later, and it's not just white people, white people as well, wadulas, but also Aboriginal people like Aboriginal people that have been removed from their parents when they were really young and grown up in white families, have gone to a place and had this amazing experience, either scary or enlightening or something, and then found out later that that place was, um, has been a, sick, a, a special place for Aboriginal people. And um, a friend of mine once made the comment that perhaps that's because it's the place itself, that it doesn't matter whether you're Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal or whatever, the place itself has this effect on you. And I'm just interested in all of your comments on that, what you have to say about that, or if you've got anything interesting to add. Alistair, perhaps you're the obvious person to start with. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard, you hear similar things. You do wonder, I mean, there's kind of an, an argument out there, an idea out there about landscape generally as, as kind of manipulating or emerging and influencing humans and that happens you could easily look at other landscapes such as you know the, the Neolithic landscape of, of this set of islands as, as well where there's kind of been some interesting ideas but it is emerging that you know landscapes, waterways, um, topography do come into play in terms of how people then feel about landscapes and then go on to use them as well but I think with the difference something like that in Indigenous Australia is that we, a lot of those, a lot of that information is still in play in Australia, you know, uh, what, what we're missing in most parts of the world is kind of deep knowledge regarding how those places actually work, so I think that that's the extraordinary aspect, I guess, of, of Australia, it's a great kind of opportunity, I don't know what, but it is an extraordinary element of, of Australia, I think. Yeah, so Aboriginal people would say country speaks to you, but you just don't recognise the language. Or you, you, you've stopped understanding or hearing that language the same as you can't hear what um, birds or animals or other elements are saying to, to you. Um, and it is about place and places um, are special and they have special meaning. It's just, and, um, and you know, all cultures have done this. I think just Western knowledge tended to cut its system up and say, those bits are gonna be personal belief and these bits are gonna be scientific endeavor or or the, the knowledge that we legitimise in the academy and those other bits that you might feel about landscape when you interact with it. Because everyone does feel things about land. We like to touch a tree. Everyone wants to go and have the butterfly land on them in the, the thing or the dolphin want to be fed by them. We do actually mostly seek those experiences and understand those relationships. But I think Aboriginal people put that into a whole, whereas often, um, I think in a Western world, they put that into the bit. Um, Andrea asked earlier a little bit about um, integrating Aboriginal knowledge into Western systems and I think from an Aboriginal view is everyone originally had an Indigenous knowledge system but the Western world's cut his one up into bits and the danger is it might have forgot how to put them back together or when it sews them back together it's going to have a really funny looking quilt or it's going to have Frankenstein, um, all these odd bits because they'll lose the pattern. I think that's kind of how you see it. But the pattern's there for you to access. 
I just have got a question in regards to the separation between cities and country, because the Aboriginal knowledge seems to be very much in country, but there's urbanization and there is a big separation between people living in the big cities and the accessibility actually as well for many Australians to, to go into country and to see rock art. Because Stonehenge is maybe a couple of hours down the road, but you know, going to the Kimberleys, the Pilbara, you're talking 20 hours a little bit. So I wanted to see if you see if there's a coming together between that divide or if it's maybe even going to grow bigger. Um, just, just on that point, and I was thinking about this in reference to the last question as well. I've grown up my whole life in Perth um, and I've only gone back to country a few times in, in the Pilbara. And actually, I'm ashamed to admit that it was only um, a couple of years ago that I learned the dreaming story for a place that was just around the corner from my house which is an extremely important Noongar site. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible place that I had always visited and never really knew the story. And so I don't think that, it, that there is that divide between urban and, I mean, and, and country. There are, there are those, there is that knowledge still in every city in Australia, in every street and, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, most, I think Indigenous knowledge is being rebuilt back into Australia's cities. Um, places like Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, Perth has native title and uh, you know the, the river systems and waterways are now being recognised for the knowledge issues around them uh, and there's a great debate in the last few weeks I've noticed regarding um, archaeological sites as part of one of the road developments and I think there's been more profiling of you know something a few years ago no one would have really cared about and I think society started to realise that these places mm. you know have incredible value as well so I think yeah. maybe there's change there. Yeah and cities cover up stuff a lot so I think that Noongar people which is the country you, you know, Western um, UWA is in Noongar country. And, uh, and just to go back to UWA, how Noongar people would say that country influences you. So UWA is actually quite famous, apart from being a university, as a place where everyone wants to get married. And lots of people have their weddings at UWA. And Noongar people would say, well, that's interesting because it was always a traditional marriage place for Noongar people. So country then makes us act in the way it wants us to, to act and that doesn't go away. But Noongar places are alive um, and well, just get overlooked because of that misconception that real Aborigines live, you know, in the centre or in the desert or in the, in the bush. But it's all around us. Thank you. I'm Erica Tachera from the Law School. Um, I wanted to go back to the issue of tangible and intangible because I think uh, I grew up in England and I think every school age child went to Stonehenge and went to Verulamium and went to these places. They're very much focused, they're, they're not living cultures anymore. That is very much about history and heritage and uh, a monument, as you said, Alastair. But I think one of the things conceptually that's quite difficult to understand for many people is the living nature of indigenous culture and how the intangible has to work alongside the tangible. Um, the, the stories, the, the traditional knowledge, the, the ceremony, all of those aspects. And I was going to ask whether that is a difference perhaps between Stonehenge and Uluru, where there's so much living culture, and how we can, how can we, moving forward then, Jill, going to your point, how can we become, a, or all of Australians become a little, uh, understand a little bit more about indigeneity and that the value of that intangible aspect? See, what I usually say when I talk about indigenous knowledge is that Australia has, when, when Aboriginal people talk about Australia, they don't talk about multicultural Australia, they talk about a bicultural Australia, indigenous, non-indigenous two knowledge systems, a Western knowledge system and Aboriginal knowledge system. So what I generally say about universities is 50% of the university budget nationally 
should go to supporting living Aboriginal knowledge systems as retained by communities. So professors in country who are lawmen and keepers and custodians, because what we expect in Australia about Aboriginal knowledge is that people will maintain it and teach their children it and other children it and all Australians it part-time on, on weekends or when they've got a bit of spare time and no knowledge system will survive and I don't think any of you would like to teach your kids everything that you want to know so that they can eventually go to Oxford on weekends and after work and the odd trip away. So my view is we should just split the education budget and particularly the university budget down the middle and then we will maintain the system in Australia. And what Australians have to get on board with, because Aboriginal people can't do it on their own, is that if Aboriginal knowledge systems and Aboriginal languages don't exist and live in Australia, you will not find them anywhere else. And I always say this about language too. You know what, if we don't teach French in Australia or Mandarin or Indonesian, it actually won't matter because they'll be somewhere else. If we don't keep Aboriginal languages, and languages are how we describe the country, if we don't keep Aboriginal languages alive in Australia, they will not exist anywhere else in the world. And I think it's Australians, up to all of us, to get on board with that one. That strikes me as a really good note to end this session, <laughs> um, which I have found enormously illuminating and moving and actually makes me want to go home, which is sad because I'm not going back for another year or two. So I'd like to thank Alistair, Jessica and Jill thank for your sharing your time and your insights. Um, I think everybody has learned a lot. download today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. At UWA, we help connect alumni with each other in our university through regular events on campus across Australia and the globe. To ensure you don't miss out on events near you, make sure your contact details are up to date and follow UWA alumni on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.